This is Body Count, a horror movie podcast, with your hosts, Trent Scott and Graham Asher. <laughs> everyone and welcome to Body Count, your home for all things creepy, crawly, ghouly, gory, or anything else that goes bump in the night. I am Trent Scott and he is Graham Ashley. What's going on Trent and welcome back everyone to Body Count. You know Trent, I have been looking forward to reviewing this film since we started talking about doing a podcast about horror films because this is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies, not just horror movies, all-time movies and we are reviewing the great Scream. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this podcast probably doesn't exist if not for this movie. Because, I mean, like we've talked about, like we grew up horror movie fans. And as someone who was born in 1990, this was the movie that made that happen. This movie was released yeah. in 1996. The slasher was dead. Like, the, dead on like, arrival for sure. Absolutely. Like, the, the Friday the 13th movies were gone. They weren't making money anymore. Nightmare on Elm Street, same thing. Halloween, same thing. It just wasn't happening. And then this movie comes along, and it's smart, and it knows its history. Yes. It's meta. It's self-referential. It's brilliantly casted. The decisions that Wes Craven makes, we'll talk about later. But everything is put together in this perfect puzzle that just erupts, and you get the huge horror revitalization of the nineties, which allowed for things like Halloween H2O to happen. And yeah. um, so I, I, I think that like, it's not an exaggeration to say without this movie, this podcast doesn't exist. Yeah. I think that's a great point. There was definitely a lull after um, a number of those 80s slasher films. Like you said, Halloween came out in the late seventies, kind of rolled into the eighties. And I think, you know, the audiences were pretty tired of seeing the same thing and nothing good had come along cue in scream in 96 like you said and boom totally revitalized i think this whole genre for sure all right graham so with that in mind are you ready to uh, hear my one sentence synopsis yes i'm always ready for your one sentence synopses these are great this movie tells the fun tale of two high school kids and the game they love to play <laughs> that's awesome i love it billy and Stu, they were just playing a game right uh, a, a very dangerous game. Um, definitely two kids who had seen probably too many horror films. But again, we will jump into all those juicy details here. Let's jump right into the plot. All right. So the movie opens. And this is right off the bat. I'm going to tell you one of the smartest things about this film yep. is the first scene. Because who do we see? We don't see Nev Campbell here. The first scene revolves around Drew Barrymore, who was by far the biggest star in the cast at the time. Yeah, definitely the biggest star of uh, at least the dead teenagers. Um, if not the entire cast, you're exactly right. I mean, yeah, you could maybe say Henry Winkler, but I mean, we're 20 years past the Fonz at this point. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Drew Barrymore is the one that has the cachet at this point. Yeah. And friends with Courtney Cox, it's, it's just getting its legs. But, but as far as uh, films, movies go, 
So uh, the phone rings. Uh, she answers it. She starts to make some popcorn. And she starts, she, you can tell she's kind of flirty. She's a very flirty person. Um, and eventually she tells the guy with, on the other end of the line, oh, this is the wrong number. She hangs up. He calls back. They start talking a little bit. And he asks her, do you like scary movies? It's almost like he's listening to our podcast, Graham. <laughs> I know, right? That's become, there's, there's so many famous lines in this, but do you like scary movies is definitely, definitely one of the tops. And she tells them that, yes, actually, she loves scary movies. Her favorite is Halloween, which we will talk about more later because it does come back around. And so they keep kind of flirting. She doesn't know who it is. And eventually uh, he keeps asking, well, what's your name? And eventually he finally says, I want to know who I'm looking at. And at this point, she realizes, uh-oh, things just get really weird. <laughs> yeah, things aren't going well. Yeah, she's definitely being very flirtatious with a stranger on the phone. Um, I love the callback to the 90s here where um, I don't think caller ID is too prevalent, and I have a little bloody bit on that later. But yeah, like who the heck is this guy calling, and can he see me? So she freaks out. She hangs up again. He calls right back and tells her, don't hang up on me or I will gut you like a fish. Yikes. And to prove he's not lying, he asks her, do you have a boyfriend? And she says, yes, I've got a boyfriend. And he plays football and he's going to kick your ass. And he <laughs> says, well, look outside. Yeah, his so name wouldn't be Steve, would it? <laughs> yes, yes. There's another one of the famous lines. And she's like, well, how did you know that? She said, and he tells her, to look outside so she looks outside and steve is tied to a chair in front of her pool and the person on the other end of the line tells her we're going to play a game and this is where the game begins and the game is going to be movie trivia and since she's nervous he's going to ask her a warm-up question who was the killer in halloween you said it was your favorite movie right and so she correctly answers michael myers he says, great, now it's time for the real question. Oh, tricked her. <laughs> Same category. Who's the killer in Friday the 13th? Now, for those of you loyal listeners out there, <laughs> you know very well that the killer in Friday the 13th is not Jason Voorhees. It is Pamela Voorhees. However, in her panic, Casey does not remember that. And she answers the killer is Jason. Yeah, I mean, most people would probably answer that question wrong. It's definitely a question that's phrased to trip you up because um, everybody remembers Jason from Friday the 13th. Nobody remembers that it was his mother in the first film. Come on. Yes. So what happens next? Well, the caller proves he's a man of his word because he told her if she got the question wrong, Steve was going to die. And we see Steve, it, it was kind of like a, I'm not exactly sure what he used, but it looked kind of like a, like a torture device out of stall where basically Steve's innards became his outards. And Steve, you can ring that bell. That's number one. Boom, body count number one. Real quick, Steve, I put gutted in the moonlight. There was a nice little scene going on behind him, but he's, he's no longer with us. So from there, she runs back to the kitchen. We see the popcorn is now on fire. She grabs a butcher's knife, and we see the first time we see the killer uh, racing through the house. Uh, they eventually get into a skirmish. They crash through one of the glass doors into the yard. Ghostface stabs her. Then he tries to strangle her. She kicks him away. And at this point, we see her parents pulling up. 
And unfortunately for her, because of the attempted strangulation, her vocal cords just can't work. So she's try- we could see her trying to yell for her mother, but yeah. she just can't get her vocal cords to work, which gives Ghostface all the times he needs to get the knife back. We see from her perspective, we see she pulls the mask off. She knows who her killer is, but we don't. As he stabs her two more times and ring that bell, that's number two. Boom. Body count number two, Casey Becker stabbed. So from there, her parents, they race into the house. There's the, the smoke going off from the popcorn. Um, they're calling for Casey. They can't find her. The mom picks up the phone to call the cops. And because Casey was on the phone the whole time, even as she was being killed, the phone is still in her hand. Mm. So the mom picks up the phone because the line is still active. She can hear her daughter's dying breaths. The husband tells the mom, go to, go to the neighbor's house, call the cops. And as the mom Goes outside, what does she see but Casey's dead body hanging from a tree? Yikes. Yeah, and so, Trent, you, you passed over a, a real quick part that is actually a, a, a little bit of a bloody bit. I didn't write it down, but I know that this um, was in there on purpose. So the dad, her husband, tells her to run to the McKenzie's. And that is the same line that they use in Halloween uh, that Jamie Lee Curtis's character says, go run to the McKenzie's. Um, for help. So that was a little nod to Halloween there. As we know, um, the screenplay writer who we'll talk about is a big horror fan. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be to write this. So yeah. <laughs> that, that is our opening scene. And, and we might as well have the discussion here because I talked about it. Yes. One of the most brilliant things this movie did was the entire marketing campaign was built around Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. You look at the poster, she's right there. Like I said, she's the biggest name in the movie. Nobody knew or expected this was going to happen that you kill off your biggest name in the first five minutes of the film it's completely unheard of and it really puts you on your toes from this point on from someone with 1996 eyes yeah i think that's a touch of brilliance really drew barrymore um and a bloody bit here drew barrymore was originally set to star in the film trent but she had other commitments so she suggested that she play that role of casey becker and you know, they, they weren't really too keen on the idea, but then they figured, you know, that would actually be a great way to start the film. Like you said, immediately putting the audience on their toes as you expect her to be, you know, the, the main character in the film, to be the final girl. Yeah, exactly. You, you think this is going to be our Jamie Lee Curtis, but it's not. It is not. So immediately from the beginning, um, now the audience, we're ready for the unexpected. And, and I really, I can't stress the brilliance of this enough because like we talked about, this movie is very self, self-referential it, mm-hmm. and it knows the history of horror movies. So it knows it's violating its own very history, which is why the decisions it makes are so much more impactful because it tells you we're doing things that we're not supposed to do. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. So from there, we actually do meet our final girl in the form of Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell. She is in her room getting ready for bed when her boyfriend, Billy, climbs in through her bedroom window. Billy, of course, uh, played by uh, Skeet Ulrich. Uh, and, I mean, just, I mean, this guy, he, he, he really delivers in his performance. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, so Billy climbs in through her window, and he tells her he was watching TV, and The Exorcist came on. Mm-hmm. And it made him think about their relationship because you see the version of Exorcist on TV, it was edited. They took out all the good hot uh, and spicy parts. And he he said it made him think about their relationship because, well, 
their relationship hasn't been very hot and spicy lately. So uh, she agrees to let him do some, as he puts it, over the clothes stuff. <laughs> yeah, he basically just is like, hey, you haven't really been putting out, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need you to put out right now. That's basically the gist of it. So they make out a little, and uh, he mentions that she has an underwear rule, which we're to presume means it ain't coming off. <laughs> and so frustrated, uh, he eventually leaves and to satisfy him, she says that they can have a PG-13 relationship and she flashes. It. Yeah, we get a nice little, we don't get to see the flash, but yes. he gets to see the flash. So from there we go, it's now the next morning at school um, and Sydney finds out from her best friend Tatum played by Rose McGowan about the double murder the night before and they don't know who did it and this is the first time that we get a tease of there was some big trauma in uh Sydney's recent past because she starts to tell her yeah they said it's the biggest crime since and then she stops and looks at her and doesn't finish and we see this weird look on Nev Campbell's face yeah she definitely alludes to something that might have been a trauma in Sydney's previous, um, in Sydney's past, rather. But yeah, that school, it's it's chaotic. There's there's news teams, there's police, everybody's talking about it. You know how high school gossip goes. At this point, everybody knows that Casey Becker and Steve have been murdered, and it's kind of a kind of a frenzy there. Yeah. So we are we find out that uh, the police are interviewing every single student, every single faculty member and everything just to try to come up with some kind of lead. So uh, we see when it's Sydney's turn to get interviewed, uh, they bring her in and the cops are very comfortable, very nice with her. We see the principal played by Mr. Fonzarelli, <laughs> Henry Winkler, as principal Enby, uh, Embry, just another brilliant bit of casting. Yeah. There. Very cool. Uh, um, and so obviously they don't, she's not a suspect or anything, mm-hmm. but they have to ask her. Um, and so from there, we go to a scene where we meet the rest of our gang. They are hanging out at the fountain. So we've already met Sydney, we've already met Tatum, and we've already met Billy. But now we are introduced to Jamie Kennedy's Randy Meeks character, awesome. who is like the nerd of the group and uh, will uh, provide a legendary scene here soon, as well as Matthew Lillard. Uh, playing the character of Stu. Dude, I mean, they like you said before, they killed it with the casting here. Um, Nev Campbell does a great job as Sydney, in my opinion. Uh, Randy uh, with Jamie Kennedy. Matthew Lillard's one of my favorites. Um, you know, just through throughout time, he you know he always delivers a good performance. Skeet Ulrich, uh, Rose McGowan, just really good casting here. And so, I, I mean, we normally talk about casting at the end, but it, it's such a it's such an important part of this movie. Might as well talk about it now. I think actually Matthew Lillard's future work in Scooby-Doo as Shaggy makes looking <laughs> back on this performance even more effective because when people see Matthew Lillard, they think of Shaggy. Yeah. You know, they think of the friendly guy. And this is such the opposite of that character. It makes it even more effective in retrospect. So that's just kind of a lucky bit of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Just a little bit of magic dust in the air that made that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Stu, the Matthew Lillard character, is joking all about the murders. He's clearly not taking it seriously. Um, he says that the police active asked him if he's ever been hunting because of the way that uh, Casey and Steve were gutted. 
and uh, you can tell Sydney is very uncomfortable. She eventually gets up and uh, just walks off. She goes home. She turns on the news. She starts flipping through the channels, and eventually she lands on a news report of being done by Courtney Cox. And we hear that uh, they, this is where we get the reveal that Sydney's mother, Maureen, was raped and murdered a year prior. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what the Tatum was alluding to. That's what the police were kind of like, oh, she's the daughter of. And then she walks in the room. So, you know, there's, there's definitely an air about Sydney. And now we know that her mom was tragically murdered just one year ago. So from there, the phone rings, Sydney's answer, Sydney answers, and we can tell it is Ghostface, but she doesn't know that yet. She thinks it's Randy just playing around. And then eventually, uh, Ghostface tells her, if you hang up on me, you'll die like your mother. Yikes. And at this point, she realizes, uh-oh, this might be legit. <laughs> and then sure enough, Ghostface tells her, I'm out on the porch. She says, oh, I'm going to call your bluff. Well, he wasn't bluffing. <laughs> so he attacks and they have a skirmish. She makes her way upstairs. She smartly, uh, she, she does a maneuver where she runs into her bedroom and she has her closet right next to her bedroom door. So she hooks the bedroom doorknob into the closet door uh, to kind of make a blockade. Uh, she goes to grab the phone. Uh, the phone line's dead. But luckily for her, she has a hard line on her computer where she can send a message to 911. She looks back. Ghostface is gone. But just about that time, here comes Billy through the window. She's freaking out. Billy's trying to calm her down. They hug. And out of Billy's pocket falls a cell phone. Uh-oh. Might as well have been the murder weapon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, so. So Sydney immediately realizes what this means she freaks out and uh because she had dialed 911 on her computer the cops are there and billy gets arrested yeah and we run into for the first time dewey trent tell us who dewey is played by just another subliminal piece of casting <laughs> dewey the town deputy is played by david arquette yeah which is interesting casting and again we'll talk more about the casting later but you know, he's, he's a comedic actor, um, kind of a, just goofy, and he's goofy in this movie too. So it's, it's kind of fun to see him um, as a police officer. I don't know how big his career was at this time, but um, yeah, you know, David Arquette. So from there, we see David Arquette's future wife and, well, <laughs> technically future ex-wife as well, Courtney Cox Arquette, because uh, she's playing the role of Gail Weathers, the um, reporter who is trying to get the story about what just happened to Sydney. Uh, we don't know why she's so interested in this particular story, but we'll find out later. So from there, we go to the police station. We see Billy is being questioned by the cops. He's denying doing anything. And then we find out something very interesting, which is that Sydney's dad, Neil, uh, who was supposed to be going on a business trip. He was supposed to be staying at the airport Hilton. Well, they're trying to, to look him up and, well, he's not there, and they cannot find Sydney's father. Yeah, where the heck is he, man? So they eventually decide that they're going to uh, check Billy's phone records, but they won't have the results until the morning. So Billy has to stay in jail overnight, and uh, Sydney decides to go home with Tatum, and she's going to spend the night at Tatum's house to kind of calm down. So they decide in order to avoid the media, they're going to sneak her out of the back of the police station. But Gail Weathers is a smart reporter. 
because she realizes, <laughs> hey, isn't there a rear exit here? So Gail Weathers decides to go around back. And sure enough, she catches them trying to sneak Sydney out. And uh, we can see that there's a lot of tension between Sydney and Gail. We don't know why. Yep. And it eventually results in Sydney just cold cocking Gail <laughs> right in the face. Yeah, nice right cross from Sydney right to Gail's face. Um, yeah, there's definitely some animosity there from Sydney toward Gail. Um, Gail, she's definitely a diligent reporter. Um, you know, I, I don't know what this type of reporting is necessarily called, Trent. Uh, you might, but it's almost like an ambulance chaser of a reporter. She's trying to get yeah. scoops on, on murders and things that and really just make a big name from herself, which she has from the murder of Marine Prescott. So from there, uh, like I said, we, they, uh, Sydney decides to go spend the night with Tatum. Uh, she's uh, in bed with Tatum. They're kind of talking about, do you, do you really think Billy did it? And Tatum's mom comes in and says, Sydney, there's a phone call for you. And she asks, is, is it my dad? And she says, no, I don't know who it is. So Sydney goes to answer. And it's Ghostface. Yeah, that familiar voice that we'll hear throughout the film. Um, and now what is she thinking, Trent? She's like, ooh, it can't be Billy. Well, it can't be Billy. <laughs> He's in jail. Right. So, But she knows the killer is still out there. And the wheels are starting to turn for her a little bit, I think. Not only because we know that you know, she kind of falsely accuses her boyfriend of being the killer. But you know, did the person who killed her mom, is it really is the right man arrested for the murder of her mother? And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Right, because we see the next morning that there's a news report about uh, the murder of Maureen Prescott, and we find out that a man named Cotton Weary was identified and convicted of the crime by Sydney. She was the star witness, um, yes. and Cotton Weary is waiting to be executed. So uh, Sydney, now the next day at school, uh, Gail is once again just hanging out in front of the school, she goes up to confront Gail, and it's, this is where we find out that Gail has written a book about her mother's murder, and Gail does not believe that Cotton Weary was the killer. She believes Cotton Weary was innocent and that Sydney pinned the crime on the wrong person, and we can see that this really kind of gets to Sydney, and Gail notices it too because when Sydney walks away, you, she talks to her cameraman, Kenny, and says, Oh, the, the real killer's on the loose. Has, has a reporter ever won the Nobel Prize before? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, you know, obviously Sydney has been through a lot the last year. She, her mother was murdered. Um, that was a quick, quick conviction, I guess, of Cotton Weary. I guess the evidence was stacked against him. He's on death row. But, you know, we can see that maybe she is questioning, is Cotton Weary really the man who killed her mother? And is he after me? So from there we go inside the school where Sydney quite literally runs into Billy and the most awkward and <laughs> painful argument in cinematic history ensues. Yeah, he's freshly finger fingerprinted too. He's still got the ink on and his fingers. And he shows it, yeah. yes. He tells his girlfriend, mind you, that she would rather call him a killer than touch him. Mm. He tells her to get over your mom's death. It's been a year already. Yikes. <laughs> and he tells her, it's just like my parents splitting up. It's not that big of a deal. Your mom's just not around anymore. Yeah, that's not the same. Not the same at all. And this is really the first time as a viewer that we really see Billy doesn't have a whole lot of empathy. 
Yeah, there's the name for that, isn't there? Psychopath. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so from there, we hear on the school intercom, Principal Hembry announces that school is canceled and that there's a citywide curfew at nine because of the murders. And so uh, Sydney, uh, after this awkward argument, she goes to the bathroom and she hears a couple of girls talking smack about her saying she's just faking it. She's an attention whore, this, that, and the other. Um, so she's freaking out. So she goes into a stall. The other girls leave and she comes out and guess who's there, but Ghostface. and Ghostface strikes again. They get into a, to a, a little scuffle. She takes off. Yeah, she takes off. She gets away pretty easily. Um, Ghostface, a little bit clumsy. Maybe that costume and that mask is inhibiting him from seeing and moving around very well. Yeah, she sprints out of the bathroom, runs down the halls, doesn't tell anybody that Ghostface was in there, which I thought was interesting. And yeah, boom, she just books it. And like you said, school's getting canceled. 9 p.m. curfew in effect. It's time to go home. So as school is being let out, we see Deputy Dewey. Uh, he's making his way in, and he happens to run into Gail Weathers, the reporter. And Gail starts turning on that womanly charm of hers, and she's flirting and says, you know, they say I do my best with the demographic of men uh, 11 to 24. And she asks how old he is, and he says 25. Uh-oh, just missed him. Like, just missed him. <laughs> but then he gets to the top of the stairs and says – well, I was 24 for a whole year, so I am interested. Yeah, he was also 23 for a whole year, 22 for a whole year, 21 for a whole year. So he had plenty of time to, um, yeah, get his eyes set on Gail Weathers because she is, she is quite attractive. So from there, uh, we see a scene with uh, Stu, Tatum, and uh, Sydney, where Stu decides he wants to throw a party because, hey, school got canceled. So there's going to be a big party at Stu's tonight, which seems rather inappropriate for the circumstances. <laughs> a little bit. Hey, two of our classmates got murdered. Let's get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, any excuse in high school to drink, right? So from there, we go to a scene inside Principal Hembry's office where he had uh, confiscated a mask from a kid running around in the ghost face outfit because uh, we found out earlier in the movie that this is an incredibly common outfit. Dewey says it's available at every store in the, in the state. And he had busted two kids, uh, expelled them. And so he's playing with the mask, but then we hear a knock on the door. He goes, looks around. There's nobody there. Then it happens again. He comes back into the office and Ghostface is in Hembry's office. And ring that bell because Principal Hembry gets it right in the gut. Oof. And the Fonz is dead. Boom. Body count number three. Principal, Principal Hembry, just another slashing slash stabbing. So next up, we get a scene between Tatum and Sydney where Tatum asks, or I, I should say Sydney asks Tatum, do you think Cotton was guilty? Or do you think the rumors about Cotton having an affair with my mom was true? Like, what do you think about Cotton? And eventually Tatum somewhat reluctantly tells her, yeah, I think your mom was having an affair uh, with Cotton. And I'm, you know, she kind of expresses doubt about Cotton's innocence. Yeah, there's rumors circulating around town that your mom was a woman of ill repute that was spending time with lots of men. <laughs> then we get a great line from Tatum where she says Sydney's making it sound like a Wes Carpenter flick. Yes, yes. 
um, which is a nod, obviously, to Wes, Carp Wes Craven, dang it, I missed it up, and John Carpenter, how people can confuse the two. Pretty funny. So next up, we get a scene with uh, Deputy Dewey, Dewey and the sheriff, where the sheriff says that they've ran uh, the phone records and they've actually traced the calls back to bump, 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 Neil Prescott, Sidney's missing father. Uh-oh. And they can't find him, but they put an APB out. He is their main suspect. So now we go to the movie store Randy is working at, and it is overflowing with kids renting horror movies, which again, all things considered, not the most appropriate actions in the world. Yeah, but what do you expect? That's what people do. So uh, Stu shows up. Randy and Stu get into an argument, and Randy lays it on the line. He's got a crush on Sydney, and he thinks Billy is responsible. Yeah, he, I mean, you know, you don't, you, there's always a stupid reason to kill your girlfriend, right? That's what Randy that's, says. That's what he says. <laughs> and he also tells us the whole thing with the dad is a red herring. It's definitely the boyfriend. Yeah, setting up some future um, reveals there. I also like when he says, there's a formula. There is a very simple formula, people. Yes, this is the scene where we really uh, see Randy is shown as the horror movie buff. He knows all the all all the all the history and everything, and this will come back up again later in my favorite scene. But anyway, from there it's party time, baby! Woo woo! Yeah. Okay. So, real quick, Trent. So, uh, you know, I get it. Other students want to go to the party, but if you're Sydney. Do you really want to attend a party? Absolutely not. No way. No. <laughs> but, you know, it wouldn't be a very good movie if she didn't. So, boom. Yeah. You are you just had attempted murder, like, tried on you, like, yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday. And today in the bathroom. So, <laughs> yes. why not just, you know, keep the dice rolling? So, she goes to the party. Everybody's having a good time. We see uh, Gooey show up with Gale on his arm. And uh, we discreetly see Gail plants a camera in the living room where most of the kids are hanging out. Yeah, how big is that hidden camera, by the way? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, technology isn't what it was, you know, in 1996 when, compared to today. It's, it's, uh, it's like the size of, like, a big remote control. <laughs> yes, it's very noticeable. Uh, so from there, we get a scene where Tatum heads out to the garage to go get some beers. And uh, so... Tatum uh, gets the beers. We see the door close behind her. The lights go off, and she makes her way back up to the to the doors. And there's Ghostface, and she thinks it's just a game. And she even plays with it, like, "Oh, you want me to be your helpless victim?" And we see Ghostface shake his head, yes. <laughs> and then, unfortunately for her, it's not a game because this is the real deal. And uh, eventually, it results in her trying to escape through a doggy door in the garage. So Ghostface, the resourceful man that he is, <laughs> says, how about I just raise the garage? So this results in her getting uh, a combination of crushed and electrocuted by the garage. <laughs> and you can go ahead and ring that bell for Tatum. Boom. Body count number four, Tatum, garage head smash. Um, pretty gruesome death there. So from there, we're going to head to basically a series of uh, basically three scenes coming in and out with each other where we have our different groups. We have Billy showing up to the party and him and Sydney are going to make their way upstairs to have a conversation. We see Gail and Kenny in the 
back in their van watching uh, the video from the camera that she just planted. And we see the rest of the teenagers hanging out in what is my absolute favorite scene. Yes. The rules. Where Jamie Kennedy explains the rules of horror movies. And quite frankly, I can't do it as well as he can. So we're going to let Jamie Kennedy himself explain the rules. Don't you know the rules? What rules? You don't... Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no-no! Big no-no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. So there you have it. Those are the rules of horror movies. Um, Meanwhile, upstairs, Billy uh, and Sydney, they've talked it out. And somehow, some way... Sydney winds up agreeing with Billy that it's time for her to get over her mother's murder (laughs) and that now is the moment for her to cash in her virginity. Yeah, he's a smooth talker, that Billy. Not only is he able to, yeah, tell her to, you know, maybe you should move on from that gruesome murder that happened a year ago, but also it's time to give it up, girl. Meanwhile, uh, Dewey goes up to the van and he gets Gail to go on a walk with him because he heard, Hey, there's a, uh, there's reports of a car in the bushes down here. So uh, Gail and Dewey go for a walk. Um, We see the teenagers uh, attempt to run them over, which yikes. I mean, this is a law enforcement officer, no matter if you respect him or not. Like this is, this is man of the law. You're going to prison if you kill Dewey. Yeah. Yeah. So they almost run uh, Gail and Dewey off the road because Randy had just received a phone call where he finds out that Principal Hembry has been murdered and he is currently hung by the goalposts. So, of course, these rowdy teenagers have to go see him before he gets cut down. And, yeah, then Gail and Dewey are in the bushes. Yep, and uh, so Dewey, like saved both of them he dove on top of her he's the big hero and he gets rewarded with a kiss yeah and then we see gail look over and she says is that what you've been looking for (laughs) and dewey says yes my whole life and she says no not the kiss the car and so they run up and dewey immediately recognizes this is neil prescott's car like this is a major discovery yeah what the heck is he doing here so Back in the house, uh, uh, Billy and Sydney are getting dressed when out of nowhere, here comes, uh, actually, I should say, they get into a little argument again where Sydney says, hey, who did you use your one phone call on the other night? And he says, oh, uh, I called my dad. She says, no, the sheriff called your dad. I heard him. And we see Billy's kind of like, uh, and then he's like, uh, what do I have to do to prove to you I'm not a killer? And before she can answer, here comes Ghostface. Ghostface attacks Billy and cuts him up 
But don't ring that bell no. because plot twist Billy ain't dead. No, hold that bell. So from there, Sydney takes off. Uh, she eventually makes her way into a room. Uh, she goes out the window. Ghostface is trying to grab her. She falls off the roof of the house. But luckily for her, there's a boat there to break her fall. Yeah, there's a nice, convenient boat down there with a nice soft boat cover. And that saves her from really any injury. Yeah. So while she's on the ground, she looks over and she's the first one to discover Tatum's body hanging from the garage. Um, and then we see Kenny, the cameraman is watching the video, but we were told earlier it is on a 30 second delay. And we see all the other kids except for Randy left because uh, they were all watching Halloween. Uh, but Randy wanted to watch Halloween. So he stayed and he's, he's yelling basically, right behind you, right behind you. While meanwhile, in real life, right behind him is Ghostface, who we see raise up the knife. Mm-hmm. And we cut back to Kenny, the cameraman, saying, you know, move, kid, move. <laughs> but we don't find out what happened to Randy. Uh, because at that moment, here comes the real Ghostface. And ring that bell because the cameraman, Kenny, gets his throat slashed. That's number five? Yes, boom. Body count number five, Kenny. Throat slash. Also worth mentioning, Sydney got stabbed once in the shoulder here. Um, and from there, we see uh, Gail makes her way back. Uh, she takes over the van. Kenny's body is on top of the van. And this is when we find out Randy's fate. He is safe. <laughs> he runs up to her trying to get in the van. She hits him in the face twice. <laughs> uh, so he he's probably about to be a little hurt, but Randy is still alive. Uh, but is while she's trying to get away, Gail winds up wrecking directly into a tree. We're unsure of her fate at this point. So back at the house, Sydney's sitting out front where she has just discovered Taylor's body. She's totally freaking out. She sees Dewey, who has literally been stabbed in the back. And I do mean literally, like you, you hear <laughs> stabbed in the back. Oh, somebody betrayed him. No, no. He's literally got a knife sticking out of his back. Yeah, she sees Dewey who, you know, she's close with Tatum. Dewey is Tatum's older brother so she's like oh i've got some help here there's a police officer and it's my friend boom knife sticking out of his back ghost face is right there to retrieve the knife and she is out of luck so sydney does some quick thinking decides to jump into dewey's police car but unfortunately for her ghost face reveals that he's got the keys dude this is one of my favorite little cat and mouse scenes um of this film and and really just Really good work here because, yeah, she's inside the car. She's got the doors locked and she's rolled up the windows. They're manual windows. So you actually have to crank them up. And she's looking and different doors on either side. Uh, the lock will pop open. She has to quickly lock it back. She doesn't know which direction Ghostface is coming from. Very cool scene. So she, uh, minor scuffle ensues once Ghostface actually makes his way into the car. She takes off back towards the house, pausing long enough to grab Dewey's gun. Uh, and now uh, here come Randy and Stu, each blaming the other, saying, oh, he killed Billy. No, he killed Billy. She's pointing the gun at both of them. She doesn't know who to believe. She eventually decides, screw both of you guys, and shuts and locks the door uh, behind her. And about that time, here comes Billy, we find out Billy's still alive. He tumbles down the stairs. She rushes to check on him, and he says, I'm okay. Uh, he's like, let me have the gun. Let me, let me take care of these guys. And he opens the door. In they come, and pow, 
he shoots Randy right in the shoulder. Yeah, Randy, just Randy comes in. Stu is nowhere to be seen, and he does another famous line because Randy's like, Stu's gone mad, he's gone crazy. And all of a sudden, we see the sinister Billy say, we all go a little mad sometimes. Boom, caps Randy. Now the audience knows Billy's not a good guy. Yep, and Sydney, this is the real uh, clarifying moment for Sydney too, because now, like you said, here comes uh, Stu in the other door, and this is where everything gets laid out. Billy reveals, oh, that's corn syrup. He licks it. Stu pulls out the voice box, shows her it was them. They trade it back and forth. It was both of them. They've been working in cahoots this whole time, which also completely breaks the rules. How can you have two slashers? This is unheard of. Yeah, this is totally unheard of and totally awesome. Next, they reveal that it was them who raped and killed Marine, not Cotton Weary. And uh, she wants to know why, like why? And, he, and at first, Billy says, there's no motive. It's much, you know, it's, it's much more uh, scary that way. But then he re- reveals, well, actually there is a motive because you see Marine was having an affair with his father, which is what led to his parents' divorce. Yeah. That's a surprise to even Stu who didn't know that Billy had a further motive in this. From there, Stu says they have a big surprise and they go and pull out Neil, who is all taped up. His mouth is taped up. His wrists are all tied together. So uh, this is clearly who they plan on pinning everything on. They drop the voice box. They drop the cell phone, which they mentioned. They cloned his cell phone. That's how all the calls trace back to him. They're trying to pin all these murders on Neil. And then they say, you know, they, they lay everything out and they say he only left the two of us to, to, to uh, survive. And we're going to be heroes, right? They got to make it look real, though. Yeah. So they take turns stabbing each other. Yeah, those two psychos start stab- stabbing each other. Billy goes a little too far on Stu, though, doesn't he? <laughs> yes. And this is even too much for Sydney to take in, where she just cannot believe the psychosis that is playing out before her. Stu goes to receive the retrieve the gun. Yes. So now everything's set up. They're gonna kill Sydney, and Stu goes to get the gun. The gun ain't there. Where is it? It turns out Gail survived her wreck, and she's got the gun, and she's pointing it at them. And Billy's approaching her, and he says, "I know something you don't know." <laughs> he, she goes to fire it. Nothing happens. He like basically one hit KOs her. Uh, she lands right on top of Dewey's fallen body. He's like, "Isn't that so cute?" <laughs> so now. Billy's got the gun back. You got to check the safety, Trent. Yes, yes. <laughs> you got to check the safety. That was what that was what he knew. Is he goes? Uh, it works a lot better when the safety's off. <laughs> so uh, Stu is knocked out. Gale, he's got the gun back. They make their way back inside, but this has all been a long enough diversion for Sydney and Neil to get away. The phone rings. It's Sydney, obviously playing with the voice box, and she reveals to them that she has called the cops. She has told them everything. Uh, they freak out. They're trying to find her. Eventually, uh, Sydney jumps out of one of the hall closets with a knife tied to the end of an umbrella. She stabs uh, Billy with it, which then uh, results in Stu running up. They get into a fight. They make their way to the living room. Sydney 
gets the upper hand in the tussle. Matthew Lillard, he's a big boy, but apparently he's not that big. The uh, blood loss from all the stabs has gotten to him. <laughs> and she eventually drops the TV that was playing Halloween directly on his head, frying him, and ring that bell. That's number six. Boom, body count number six, Stu. TV electrocution, rough way for you to go, Stu. Yeah, not, not, not a great ending for Stu. But about this point, Billy has come too. Sydney and Billy get into a fight. Uh, but Gail makes her triumphant return. She uh, shoots Billy. We think he might be dead. We're not sure. Sydney, however, not taking any chances because here comes Randy. He says, well, this is the part in the movie where the killer gets up for one final scare. Sure enough, Billy stirs. Sydney, boom, right through the forehead. This is not in my movie. And ring that bell, that's number seven. Boom. Billy got his brain splattered. Yeah, body count number seven. No sequel for you, Billy. So from there we go to the next morning. We see Dewey's being loaded into the ambulance. Gail is doing a breaking news story, which, by the way, <laughs> Gail was directly involved in this major crime scene. Don't you think the police would want to take her for questioning before letting her go on air and publicly air all these details? Yeah, absolutely. She's like, you're never going to believe this firsthand account of this gruesome tale. <laughs> it's like from there. Uh, we get a flash frame of Ghostface and credits roll. And there you have it. 1996's Wes Craven's classic Scream. I mean, we kind of already teased it. Let's, uh, let's talk about the casting from here. I mean, Nev Campbell uh, as the final girl, um, just a, a, a huge, huge breakout role. I mean, she was on Party of Five, mm -hmm. but this took her to the absolute uh, A-list. Yeah. Uh, Nev Campbell, I thought she was fantastic as Sydney Prescott. Um, she plays the final girl really well. She has a lot of fight in her. Um, you know, she has baggage from, from you know, obviously the, the death of her, her mother that she plays really well. I think she just does a great job. Um, so uh, next up, let's go ahead and talk about the rest of the teenagers. Uh, Rose McGowan, Jamie Kennedy, they're kind of the nice complimentary pieces. They don't get to do the heavy lifting, mm -hmm. uh, but I thought they were both great in their role. Jamie Kennedy, especially. Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, so from there, we've got the two killers, Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich. Again, both fantastic. Like I said earlier, Matthew Lillard, one of my favorites. Um, you know, people, people know him from probably mostly from Scooby-Doo or this. Um, really great film that came out in the 90s called SLC Punk, uh, which he played a punk rocker, which is really good. He's also in the Academy Award winning film The Descendants with uh, George Clooney. Um, yeah, big fan of Matthew Lillard and 13 Ghosts, which is a good yeah. horror film. And for me, Skeet Ulrich, I think he might have had my favorite performance in this film. Like you can see the whole time there's just this darkness inside Billy yes. that you shouldn't trust. And yet Sydney can't help falling for him. But in the end, uh, it, it, you know, it, it bites her. Just a, just a great performance by Skeet Ulrich. Yeah, and you know, he uh, kind of has a striking resemblance, don't you think, to Johnny Depp and when he comes in through the window um, at the beginning of the film, much like Johnny Depp's character does in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, yeah, I think he did a great job, especially when he, when he starts to turn into that psychotic Billy. Just really well done. Uh, from there, the next two people to talk about on the cast would be the Arquettes, David and <laughs> Courtney Cox. 
Yeah, uh, they also did a great job. Like I said, Dewey, uh, David Arquette as Dewey, kind of the lovable, goofy, um, unassuming cop, um, has a crush on, you know, the Gail Weathers, the the reporter, and she does a great job of being a bitch, which is total turn from her character at the time as Monica on Friends. Yeah, we're we're two years into Friends at this point, where it is becoming one of, if not the biggest show on American television. And this is really, I mean, to my knowledge, the first time that any of the six cast members really crossed over and did a major film like this. Yeah. So this was this was a this was a big tentpole event for Courtney Cox herself. This was huge to prove, you know, I'm not just a TV actress. I can do films also. Yeah, absolutely. I thought she played it really well. Other than that, uh, there's not a whole lot of other people to talk about. It is interesting that the role of Cotton Weary uh, was actually played by Liv Schreiber, who, I mean, he doesn't even get to talk in this movie. Yeah. We just get to see glimpses of him. He will become more important in the sequels. Um, so it is interesting, though, that they actually went out and got a name actor for such a small role. It, it kind of tells you they were thinking sequels right from the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you said, he doesn't really have any lines, but we can recognize him. Um, you know, Henry Winkler as the principal, pretty cool little cameo. And then, of course, we talked about Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker. And to me, that rounds out the most important of the cast. Well, if you want to talk about a cat, uh, a cameo, uh, one of the most interesting uh, parts of the film was uh, the scene with Principal Henry when he when he's in his office and uh, the door gets knocked out. Uh, the door gets knocked and he looks out in the hall. We see a janitor wearing a familiar red and green sweater. Well, that's Wes Craven himself playing Fred the janitor. Yeah, that was really fun. Um, for anybody who actually knows what Wes Craven looks like, yeah, that's him playing the janitor as Fred, dressed like Freddy Krueger. Nice little nod there. Yeah, so just all in all, just, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a, a better cast than what they put together. Just every single role, it's just nailed. There's not one piece of, of this ensemble that I'd want to change. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a note here, you know, like Trent, the cinematography of this film isn't groundbreaking. The kills themselves aren't particularly special, you know, just pretty much true slasher. You know, you have a, a couple uh, with the garage door and the TV, but what makes this movie work, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, is the self-awareness, the satire, the ability to constantly make fun of itself. And as an audience member, you kind of feel like you're in on the jokes, especially if you're a movie buff. And it's also quite the who done it um, that leaves you guessing until the end. So I thought that was really cool and well done. So yeah, let's talk about the writer of this film, Trent. Kevin Williamson, in his first writing credit, uh, just did a masterful job, like I said, of, of you know putting a really unique and fun, edgy, cool horror movie together. Hmm, edgy, fun, and cool. That sounds a lot like Kevin Williamson's next project, Dawson's Creek. That's right. <laughs> he went from writing this film to two years later being the creator of Dawson's Creek. The man has range. Yeah, that was a huge hit in the 90s. I was a big fan. I mean, like, Joey was like, you know, everybody's first crush. You know, Vanderbeek was on top of the world. Uh, the WB still existed. It was a huge <laughs> deal. Yeah, dude. Um, you know, Katie Holmes, Vanderbeek, Michelle Williams, Joshua Jackson. Um, Good. This isn't a Dawson's Creek podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but go check it out. That's, our, that's, uh, that's the Patreon bonus, folks. <laughs> we'll break down each episode of Dawson's Creek. Oh, man, that's going to be a long one. 
Um, but anyway, uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, I mean, just an incredible run that he's about to be to go on. Let's break down his uh, his, his his credit, shall we? Yes. So this is this is his first credit in '96. He's the writer here. Well, he follows that up with in '97 with "I Know What You Did Last Summer" and "Scream 2. So in a two-year span, he comes out with three massive, massive hits uh, in the horror genre. 1998. I already mentioned he wrote and. Uh, created Dawson's Creek. Well, he also wrote the faculty and executive produced Halloween H2O. This guy is lightning on fire in 1998. Yeah. He's, he's putting in the work, man. Um, like he has the full on Midas touch at this point. Yeah. Big fan of the faculty actually. Good, good movie. Uh, from there we get scream three in 2000, which he doesn't write, but he does uh, produce. He also writes and produce cursed in 05 he comes back as the writer and producer of Scream 4 when they rebooted the series in 2011. And when the full reboot of Scream comes out in 2022, he's executive producing that. So this guy uh, just, I mean, all kinds of hit coming from his fingers. And guess what? We're not done because he's also worked in television. We already talked about Dawson's Creek. Well, how about, you know, Hidden Palms? And oh yeah, The Vampire Diaries, which had a nice, nice run on CW. He was the creator of that too. The guy is just, you know, an incredibly talented and successful writer. Yeah, he did a great job. And I have a bloody bit about Kevin Williamson writing the screenplay. Oh yeah, let's hear it. So Kevin Williamson, as the struggling writer that he was, because like we mentioned, this is his first credit. He hadn't gone on to create all these Dawson's Creek and all these things where he's, you know, presumably making lots of cash. He was pretty broke at the time. The screenplay was influenced by a real news story that he was watching about a series of grisly murders by who was quoted as the Gainesville Ripper, who was AKA Daniel Harold Rowling, who unfortunately killed a number of college students in Gainesville, Florida in 1990. So he had some inspiration behind Ghostface, um, obviously took that to create Scream. Uh, from there, I think it's only natural at this point that we talk about Wes Craven, the man behind the camera. Um, this really was his coming out party, or well, I should say coming out party. This is his uh, I'm back. Yes. You know, uh, like we had said, the Nightmare at Elm Street franchise had really petered out uh, just two years earlier uh, than this. Uh, the Wes Craven's new nightmare had come out, which we talked about was also very meta you had freddy krueger coming into the real world i was very strange didn't make a lot of money but this movie let everyone know i am back and i'm still the king baby yeah absolutely dude and you said this revitalized the slasher movie of the 90s uh spawned three sequels eventually a tv series of course but it was really the adept direction of I mean, it was, it was well-written, of course. It was well-acted, but, you know, directors, they put it all together, and he did a great job. Um, so from there, uh, let's kind of talk about the, the impact of this film. Um, it, grow, it was released in December of 96, grow, winds up grossing $103 million domestically, which doesn't sound like a ton now, but you got to remember, this was at a time where only 10 or 12 movies a year would reach that number. So this was legitimately one of the biggest movies of the year. 
and it was immediately followed the very next year with a sequel. That's how that's how big this was. They wasted no time because it was such a hot property. Yeah, the first time I saw this movie was actually in theaters in 1997. As you mentioned, it came out in 96. Uh, my parents would drop me off at the Dollar Movie Cinemaplex uh, when I was a kid. I would buy a ticket to anything, and you know, because I was 10 at the time, I couldn't get into PG-13 or R-rated films, but I would sneak into whatever movie I wanted. So I sat in the back of this completely empty theater. Absolutely love this movie. It's one of my earliest and favorite movie experiences at the cinema and really spawned my love for, I still love going to movies. I know you go to movies all the time, Trent, uh, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, and even maybe now, I don't know if you still have that movie pass where you get to attend a movie a week for free, but, or for free. I, I, I know this is, this is going to shock you, but uh Turns out that that's not a sustainable business uh, model, and MoviePass went under. Oh, no. Well, yeah. you, you're still a big frequenter of, of movies, yes, yes. just like I am. So, um. But seriously, like this was like a, a Friday the 13th turnaround on, on getting the sequel out. It was 51 weeks from, from <laughs> the first movie to the sequels. The original comes out December 20th of 96, and the sequel comes out December 12th of 97, Mike. They were, they were said, please give me your money. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they did a good job with the sequel because, you know, in a lot of these horror films, when they do the sequel, they don't necessarily keep the same cast. Well, in Scream 2, Nev Campbell returns. We have uh, Courtney Cox returns. David Arquette returns. Jamie Kennedy returns briefly. Um, yeah, well, and, and that's because of another interesting part of this, of this film, which... You know, we talked about all the rules that they broke, and um, you just compare it to the three prior movies that we've reviewed. There ain't a whole lot of folks left standing at the end of those movies. Yeah. But here, like, legitimately, like, half the characters we care about actually make it through the movie alive, which is not something we're, we, we've seen before in the other movies that we've done. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, hopefully we'll get to review Scream 2 in the future, but, uh, but you know, that goes on to to make fun of itself even more with the creation of the stab movie franchise and everything. Um, yeah, just really well done. Like I said, it's, it's a lot of tug and cheek and those are sometimes my favorite as a viewer um, because I feel like I'm, I'm a part of the joke. I feel like I'm, I'm inside their world as well. Uh, I've got another quick bloody bit for you, Trent. So you know that I am a big fan of working titles, right? So we talked about how yeah, the absolutely. working title of Halloween was going to be, or the original title was going to be the, babysitter murders so mm -hmm. the working title or the original title for this film was actually going to be scary movie which would of course go on to be the name of the franchise making fun of this franchise <laughs> yeah exactly what a small world yeah what a small world um uh briefly since we've talked about it with the other films uh let's do it here uh, in terms of critical reception uh graham do you have a guess as to what the tomato meter is gonna have to say tomato meter i'm never good at rotten tomato meter but i'm going to say i i'll base it on the the imdb score of a 7.2 i'll say it's a solid 70 78 so uh and but again a lot of people are gonna hear 78 like oh that's good but you have to understand this is for a horror movie horror movies and comedies do not get reviewed well like this yeah so for a relatively big budget this has had about a 15 million dollar budget which for a mainstream horror movie especially in the mid 90s is actually a fairly high budget um so for a big mainstream horror movie to have four out of five critics like it that's pretty unheard of yeah and i would agree 
So speaking of critics, let's talk about our favorite critic, Roger Ebert, the man who coined the phrase dead teenager movie, which we have taken to heart and it's been come, become a bit of a you know, banner for us here on Body Count. Uh, he reviewed the movie on its initial release in 1996. He gave it three out of four stars. So he was one of the positive reviews on the tomato meter. And um, this little section of his review uh, really sums it all up to me. Scream is not about the plot. It is about itself. In other words, it is about characters who know they are in a plot. Yeah, perfect, perfect synopsis summary of, of exactly what this movie is about. Yep, Roger Ebert is the favorite um, genius, genius reviewer. And for him to, you know, he's not a huge horror movie fan. So for him to give this uh, three out of four stars or a score of 75, not bad. Not bad at all. So, Graham, do you have any last bloody bits you want to get to? My last bloody bit, Trent, which I don't know if you could directly um, give credit to this film, but the use of caller ID increased more than threefold after the release of this movie. (laughs) So um, I'm not sure if that was just technology or coincidence, but I think one one of the things that people realize is, hey, it's probably a good idea to know who's calling me just in case Ghostface shows up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because that's just one of those things you take for granted in 2020. But in 1996, that was a uh, relatively new technology. But with that in mind, uh, Scream, as beloved as it is, is now in our rearview mirror along with Halloween and Friday the 13th. And since there were no good horror movies for Thanksgiving, we did uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And now we've got Scream. But now there's another holiday coming up, Graham. Christmas. Christmas. And there are a couple of horror films that uh, live in the world of Christmas time, Trent. There sure are. So I've got three in particular that I want to throw at you, Graham. Let's do it. All right. We have Krampus. Recent, more recent film. Uh, all I know is Adam Scott is in that film. He is. We have Black Christmas, which was a slasher made in Canada in 1974. Okay. Or we have Black Christmas, the reboot, baby. The American version, which was made in 2006. And that one, I should tell you, has some familiar names. How about Katie Cassidy, Michelle Trachtenberg, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, among others? Yeah, so this is a tough decision for me, Trent. And I got to pick Scream last time. So I'm going to let you pick what we review for Christmas. You know what? I've seen Black Christmas. I kind of want to go into something blind. So let us do it, folks. We're going to review Krampus. All right. Episode five of Body Count is going to be Krampus. I can't wait. That's going to be a lot of fun. So with that in mind, uh, that is going to wrap up our show. Graham, why don't you let everybody know about our social? Yes, please um, give us a follow on Instagram at Body Count Show. Um, You can tell us what you think about the podcast. Uh, We'll have graphics of the movies that we're covering um, yeah, give us a follow, give us a shout. We'd love to interact with you. And so with that in mind, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, make sure you subscribe. 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. We're available wherever you want to hear us. Also, rate and review. You can leave us five stars. That that just helps us out. It, you know, it puts us up towards the top of results, all that kind of stuff. So thank you, and we will catch you next time.